Well, let's pray and we'll start with questions. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here today and we pray that you would bless this time and bless our conversation. And we pray, Lord, that um, that this time together will be beneficial for us all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I got my Bible. I'm ready. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 th- I don't think I have any questions. I, I, the one parable I, I didn't understand, quite frankly. And I read it over, and my wife and I discussed it. And so I finally went to my books. I have a good friend that's a past minister, and he had, he'd give me his whole, whatever you call those... Uh, Commentary? Commentary. Okay. And I got out the one, and it explained it, I think, at least to my satisfaction. The one on uh, Luke 19 about the, uh, the, the wealthy man that goes to get uh, leaves and comes back and so forth. The minus? The 10 minus? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I assume the, the commentary is, is correct, but you might want to explain that <laughs> just in case. Um, okay, there are a couple things that are going on here. Um, so we're getting right toward the end of, of Jesus' life. And, uh, and, and the conflicts are kind of becoming more pronounced. And uh, um, the, the account right before that is Zacchaeus. And they're, they're really not happy with Jesus, like, hanging out with Zacchaeus. There, there's this tension there. And uh, he tells them this parable. Um, and, uh, um, when, when they, it says, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear, appear immediately. So there's this idea out there that the kingdom of God is going to be like a political kingdom. And, uh, you know, if you remember back, like the, the very first sermon that Jesus preaches is repent for the kingdom is at hand. (laughs) The kingdom's here because I'm here. Yeah, it is, it is what he's saying. And, um, and, and they don't see the kingdom in him. And, uh, and he says, you know, this noble man goes off to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. Uh, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. There are a couple things that are going on here. This actually happened with Herod the Great. When when he oh, I didn't know that. was you know on his way to Caesar to become king, there was another delegation that kind of tried to take the uh, the quick route around. and say, don't don't make him king, but for whatever reason, um, Caesar Augustus thought Herod was great. He thought he was pretty amazing, and uh, he he said you know. He recognized our problems because once he said, uh, I'd rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons because Herod killed several of his sons, one of his wives. And right. He was a mess. And, um, you know, so there's an element of that there. But there's also this element of, um, you know, who is this, uh, who is this nobleman? And uh, if we understand this nobleman to be Jesus or to be God, 
you know, which was my hang up. We we see then, you know, oh, his people are rejecting him. But this is also it shows us how God works, that He works through His people. And so He leaves His people with gifts, and they're varying gifts, you know. And so you know the one servant, you know, he gets ten minus, and the other, you know, gets less, and another gets less, you know. And uh, you know, and sometimes people are like, "Well, that's not fair," but that's a pretty good reflection of of life. And we're not called to, you know, to do everything, but we're called to be faithful with what we have and to, to use that uh, to God's, God's glory. Um, but then there's this one who uh, takes it and he hides it away. And really, it looks like that's the only thing that you can do that's wrong in this parable is to, no, is to do nothing. You know, you, you kind of get the impression that you know, the other ones, they, you know, they tried. And if this guy had even tried a little bit, you know, the, the, the master would have been fine, you know. Um, but this guy takes it and hides it away. And I think that this becomes a picture of, uh, of Israel, in a sense. Because they received all of God's promises and the whole idea, as you read through the Old Testament, is that they were to be a light to the Gentiles, you know, that, you know, the nations are to come to them, you know, and, uh, and to meet God through them. And over and over again, they want to be like the nations instead of being like themselves, you know, being who God called them to be. And it's like, you know, God gave them this gift and they just took it, put it in a hanky and hid it in the ground uh, rather than, than, you know, sharing this because if if I'm right, you know, in terms of the way that I'm going with this, the minus, you know, the, this amount of money, it isn't money, it's the gospel. It's God's word. You know, and uh, you know, and the idea is you're supposed to to share this in order that, you know, people will come to know this very benevolent king. And uh, and because they don't, uh, the servant in in the story then um, is cast out. And, uh, um, and I think it becomes a parable that gives us a picture of what God is doing with his people. Mm-hmm. He's saying to them, you didn't use the gift and you're being cast out. Now, it's at the end of the story, you know, we bring that into, you know, today and, and, you know, the Jews are around still and, you know, is there hope? But yeah, if they hear this good news and they come to believe in it, you know, absolutely. You know, and I think Paul um, extrapolates on that in Romans 9. You know, I think it's 9. Uh, But anyhow, where, you know, Israel has kind of broken themselves off and new branches are grafted in. uh, And, you know, so Israel then is not people who are genetically Jewish, but there are people who have Abraham's faith. And Abraham's faith was in the one who was coming, who we know <clears throat> as Jesus, the one who has come. So that's, that's what I see in that, par- in that parable. And he left for a while, but came back, which would connote to me or the, the second coming. Yeah, um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. But I also, I also see in this kind of, this is kind of how God works. You know, so when you look at uh, um, early Israel, he's there with them in the Exodus. And they've got the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And at some point that stops. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it, it stops after they're settled into the promised land. And, and they have a place that they are okay, to go so to. It's even broader than I was thinking. Yeah, I think so. Um and, and, and even in the midst of that, he's working through his servants. You know, God does not often, you know, deal what we would call immediately, you know, without some kind of a mediator. You know, so, you know, Moses leads the people out. He's God's mediator, so to speak. He leads them out of the promised land. He speaks on God's behalf to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. And uh, they come across and they come to Mount Sinai and God speaks to the nation from Mount Sinai. And they're terrified. And they're like, whoa, time out. No, 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 no. Let God talk to Moses. Moses talk to us. We, we, we can't stand to hear the voice of God. You know, they want, they want the, the servant to be given the gifts in order to do the work. And, and God tends to work that way. You know, and, okay. and there are people, you know, sometimes he speaks directly to people. And I think even today, sometimes, you know, he speaks directly to people. You know, uh, some of the stories that I'm hearing out of um, Muslim countries of people having dreams, telling them, you know, you need to find out about Jesus. Really? Or, yeah, or they have visions of Jesus. These, you know, very devout Muslim people. And it's like, what's going on? And then they go and they learn about Jesus and, hmm. and they convert. Um, I, I think that's the Holy Spirit. I think that's God at work mm-hmm. directly, immediately, without means. Um, but I also think that it's interesting that, you know, he doesn't just say, it's not like when Paul was coming to Damascus, he knocks him off the horse and, you know, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You know, it's not like that. It's, you know, you need you need to learn more about me. You need to find some guy, you know, who's going to tell you about me. He's still, at least those are the stories that I'm hearing. Huh, okay. The gist of it I think I got. Yeah. And, but, you, yeah, the it, uh, maybe it was my focus was a little narrow. Um, but that's fine. Yeah. And I think that this stands as a warning to us. We've been given this gift now. If we take it and we bury it, we run the risk of being that last servant who in the end is, you know, you wicked servant. You know, um, you know so I, I think that has to be taken seriously as well so that, you know, we go about our business, you know, is there any symbolism or whatever to the fact that he only talks about three out of the ten? Um, or is that not just, necessarily? I don't think so. I th- I think that you know when you start telling stories, sometimes you can get it too. It gets too long, you know. And and I think Jesus was a really good storyteller and probably knew his. Uh, Boundaries in order to keep his people's okay. attention. So and they were symbolic of the, the whole, probably. Yep. Okay. Yep. 
Yeah. So, anything else? I, you're going to, I hope, get to all of my other We're going to give it a shot anyhow. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, at the end, if, we, uh, if I don't, you got me. So, all right. So, in, in this session, uh, uh, the main part of what I want to talk about is what we call the means of grace. Okay. Um, and uh, when we say means of grace, that's a theological term. Um, I, I love when I'm talking with the, uh, my, my confirmation kids, what does means mean? You know, <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about, Pastor? You know, but in this case, means is a vehicle. It's, it's, uh, um, it's a conveyance. We both got here today by means of a car. And uh, so the means of grace are, you know, how, how does God grace, God's grace come to us? How do we get it? And, uh, and so obviously faith receives the gift, but God delivers it. You know, and so when we talk about the means of grace, it's really about what does God do to deliver it? to us. You know, and you know the whole idea is that over and over again God is giving us grace. And depending upon how you want to talk about it, we could either say that there's one means of grace or there are generally three. Okay. So if you want to be really persnickety, you could say there's one means of grace and that's God's word. Okay? Um now, God's word will put on some different clothes from time to time. You know, it's not just reading it in the Bible. It's also memories of his word in your head. It's also the words that you speak to others when you speak God's word, when you speak God's truth to somebody else. Um, and there are two other gifts that God gives where he attaches his word to uh, some visible elements in order to give forgiveness and give his grace uh, to people. And that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. So often we say there are three means of grace because, you know, we, we say scripture, baptism, Lord's Supper. But really when you look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are God's word in, with, and under these other gifts. Yeah. You know, so... Um, it's kind of splitting hairs, but uh, uh, I, I think that's worth mentioning uh, because ultimately we're going back to God's word in all of these circumstances. Okay. And, and so the, the picture here is really um, that God has put his grace somewhere, like a power plug. Oh, I see. And, you know, you plug into it and you receive it. You know, so it's there in his word for us to receive it. It's there in baptism for us to receive it. It's there in the Lord's Supper for us to receive it. Now, when we talk about um, grace, when we talk about the gospel, I use those fairly synonymously. Grace means um, all of God's favor. Um, I like the, uh, there's an acronym for uh, grace, grace. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, and, and um, you know, so it's, it's all of God's forgiveness and his mercy and his kindness. Uh, it's his attitude toward us. 
And uh, the gospel is the good news of that proclamation that, that God loves us and he forgives our sins. So those two stand really close together. Um, and so in Romans 1, 16, it says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, so the gospel, this grace is the power that we receive uh, in these, uh, um, and then our faith takes hold of the gift that God gives, which is kind of fun because uh, even faith is a gift <laughs> that God gives us. So, you know, when Luther, Catholics sometimes criticize uh, Lutherans, saying that Luther, when he was translating Roman, when he translated Romans, um, he he changed the text, and he says, you know, that salvation is you know by grace alone. The Greek actually says it is from grace and to grace. The idea being, it's by grace alone, you know, and so basically he, he smoothed out the, uh, the translation so people could understand what's being said, um, but they complained because that word alone is technically not there. Although if you go to Ephesians two, you got it there. So I, I'm really not too fussed on that. Um, but uh, um, this this whole idea that everything comes to us uh, by God's grace is is really central to the, the Christian faith. You know, and, and we try to hold on to that pretty firmly uh, around here in Lutheran circles. Um, sometimes we're a little bit ornery about it even. So, And the effect of this, this grace that comes to us that we receive by faith is forgiveness. It's, it's actually new life. And, uh, uh, and if you want to stick with that power picture, it's the empowerment to be alive in Christ, the empowerment to live differently, you know, the empowerment to um, walk in God's ways and, and, and to you know, start to look and to act and to be, you know, God's people, to be Christ-like. When Gabriel comes to Mary, yeah, doesn't he say, I may be wrong, but doesn't he say Mary is full of grace? Yep. Okay. And so the power of God, okay. The power of God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his salvation is just totally at work in her. It isn't that, you know, it isn't that she was like in and of herself somehow special or better than everybody else. Now, it sounds like I just said that Mary's not special. I'm not saying that she's not special. She was chosen, you know, God worked mightily in her life, and I suspect she was a very special young lady. And um, um, it, it, but it wasn't because something about her; it was because what God was doing in her life to prepare her to be her son's, his son's mother. Okay, so she was chosen, maybe long before she was born, maybe? I think so. Uh, but Lutherans don't, I don't, do the, the Immaculate Conception and all that kind of stuff is, is how does that, does that fit, or is that outside the bounds of? Depends upon which Immaculate Conception you're talking about. If you're talking about Jesus in the virgin birth, we fully believe that. No, I wasn't talking about But if you're talking about Mary, uh, 
you're correct. We do not uh, hold to that. Uh, we think that her conception was pretty normal. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, I mean, she, as far as the genealogy and everything, she fit perfectly with the generations and yeah. the son of David and all that. But, yeah, okay. Yeah. And she's the one that God chose. And, and, and he prepared her for that very special work by blessing her with grace and faith. And, you know, and that's what made her special. And that's what made her um, the one that was worthy to carry the child. It wasn't that, you know, she of all people of history was worthy. You know, as if she had accomplished something great. No, she was worthy because God's grace declared her worthy. Okay. You know, you know, and if you think back across history, there were other people that God chose for very special purposes who were worthy of His attention in, in some pretty cool and special ways. You know, you think about Abraham. Right. You know, you're going to be the father of this whole nation. Well, Abraham does some pretty scummy things. What? Mm-hmm. How is he worthy? Because God made him worthy. God chose him. You know, David, you know, man after my own heart, God says of him, you're going to be the king. You're going to represent me to this people. But he's got no problem sending off his troops to fight on their own. And while he's doing that, to sleep with one of his commander's wives, you know, and then to murder him. Uh, You know, and... Well, how can he be a man after God's heart? How can he be worthy? Because of God's grace. Because God chose him for that task. And, and I think that this is something that is really important when we talk about this grace. Because God has said of us that we are worthy to receive his forgiveness, to be his people, to be his children. You know, I look at my own life, I'm like, I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I am because of what he has done and what he says, not because of me, if that makes sense. Yeah. But kind of meshes with what I've been taught. Although I've always heard, not, I don't know where, but you know, Mary was supposedly sinless and that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh but it's not in scripture anywhere. No. In fact, um at one point uh Mary sent Jesus uh brothers and sisters, and I do believe he had biological brothers and sisters. Um half brothers and sisters. Yes. You know, I believe Joseph had children with Mary. Yeah, I too. You know, and uh and there are people who disagree with that. My wife yeah. yeah, and then there are Lutherans who would disagree with that. I've, oh, I've been really? watching a kind of an interesting conversation on Twitter, uh, you know, and uh, um, and even Luther himself mm, seems to have held the the perpetual virginity of, of of Mary. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, salvation doesn't rise or fall upon that. Um, I I don't see it in the text. You know, yeah, it's. I don't see it as necessarily important. Right. You know, but um, at one point when when um, Jesus is getting going with the ministry, you know, they think he's nuts. And Mary is part of the group that goes to collect him. 
Well, that would say that she doesn't believe that he's the Savior. You know, or you know, at least in that moment, that seems like quite possibly a sin. I don't know. I'm not the judge, but, you know, um, I, yeah, I, I have some difficulty with the, uh, the sinlessness and, and the, the perpetual virginity. I, I just don't buy it. So, okay. but that doesn't mean that I'm going to look at somebody who does and be like, you're a heretic. Exactly. You know, maybe privately later, you know, but <laughs> no, you know, I can see where I can understand where somebody would come up with that. I don't think that that endangers. I can understand it. Yeah, I don't think that endangers their salvation. Right. You know, and so since it doesn't endanger their salvation, I'm not going to get too fussed about it. I, I, yeah. So you know, I guess leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So these two special means that we talked about with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, these are God's word, but they're God's word in, with, and under um, some visible elements. And, and so when we look at what is a sacrament, um, I've got you know, some, some key things that we look for. It's a sacred act. You know, it's, it's something that's holy. You know, um, it's instituted by God. There are visible elements that are connected to God's word, and it's given for the forgiveness of sins. So that's our working definition. If it hits all five of those, those criteria, it's a sacrament. And, uh, and so, you know, in the Catholic Church, they have seven sacraments. One of them is marriage, right? So just to walk through, is it a sacred act? Absolutely. Was it instituted by God? Yep. Uh, are there visible elements? Well, let, let's be generous and say that the people that are getting married are, are, are visible elements. Is there God's word? Yeah, the two will become one flesh. Is it for the forgiveness of sins? No. That's pretty good, though, four out of five. Yeah, 80% isn't bad. No, not at all. I mean, we, we definitely want to hold marriage in a, in a high and holy and special way. Um, but uh, um, it, it just doesn't fit the, the criteria. Um, where I grew up, um, Manistee, Michigan, at the time it was like 80% Catholic. You know, and uh, you know, all my friends were Catholic. And, you know, and you know how guys are. You got to pick on each other about something. You know, and we would often pick on each other because uh, of our religions. You know, they were Catholic and I was Lutheran. I was the oddball out, you know. You know so during Lent, they would be getting their fish or their cheese pizza and I'd be getting a cheeseburger. And they'd be like, Tritton, you're going to hell. You know, <laughs> at least I'm eating a cheeseburger, you know. And, uh, it, and one of the things that we argued about was this whole thing about sacraments and how many sacraments they were. Really? Yeah. You know, and it, it was mostly in fun. Um, but one of the things I didn't understand at the time was really we weren't arguing about what's a sacrament and what's not. But how do you define what a sacrament is? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and this does, in some ways, um, muddy the water when we're talking with um, our Catholic brothers and sisters, because they use a slightly different definition. 
You know, that requirement for the forgiveness of sins is, is not part of that. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't know what the official definition of, uh, of a sacrament from the Catholic Church, what that is. Um, but, uh, um, you know, we, we just, we define it a bit differently. And, and, and I think that that's important when we're talking with our, our, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, to recognize that sometimes different denominations use the same words differently. Yeah, and so sometimes you kind of have to peel through some layers to understand where they're coming from. Because I've met people who are deeply, deeply offended because I didn't hold that marriage was a sacrament. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, time out. No, this is something that's really, really important. It just doesn't provide the forgiveness of sins. You know, so it doesn't fit the, the criteria. Um, uh, baptism. Again, is it a sacred act? Absolutely. Instituted by God? Definitely. Um, Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And uh, visible elements? Yep, we've got water. God's word? Yep. Uh, forgiveness of sins? Yep. So we would hold that that's a sacrament. Confirmation. Here's another one that sometimes people get riled about. Um, sacred act. Sure. You're making a vow to say, I'm going to believe this for the rest of my life. Instituted by God? Nope. No, this is a human invention. Invisible elements? Okay, again, maybe you. God's word? Maybe. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I confess him before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll, you know, I deny him before my Father in heaven. All right. Forgiveness of sins? No. No. Still a good thing. Lord's Supper, sacred act, yeah. Instituted by God, yeah. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, take and eat, took the cup, take and drink. Visible elements, yep, bread and wine. God's word, yeah. This is my body, this is my blood. Forgiveness of sins, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of yeah. sins, yeah. So, those two things are what we really want to dig into for today. So, what is baptism? Um, whenever we're defining these things, we want to look at what, what does the scriptures say about them. And Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is the, uh, the key passage for baptism. Um, so, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's preparing to ascend into heaven. Um, and it says that Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, one of the things that I always point out um, when, uh, when I teach about this verse there's only one command. There's only one imperative verb in everything that I just read. And it's the words that are in red. Make disciples. I have heard a lot of sermons that focus pretty hard 
on go. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go, but I am saying that's not oh. the imperative verb. Um, go is actually not even a verb in the original. Um, it's a participle. It's kind of setting the stage. As you are going, therefore, in oh. other words, you're going out into the world, folks. As you're going out, as you're living, as you're going about your day-to-day business, command, make disciples. And of all nations, so this is everybody, and then he has, there are two more participles that follow that indicate how this making disciples is done. Baptizing them and teaching them. So it's a binary action. People will complain sometimes and they'll say, how can somebody be baptized if they've not been taught? You know, I'm like, there are two things that need to happen here. You know, in, in order to be a disciple, you need baptizing and you need teaching. It doesn't say anything about the order that they come in. You know, and, and so when we, well, we'll talk a little bit more about infant baptism in, in a minute here, but uh, uh, when we deal with people, you know, we obviously baptize infants. You, you've seen us do that. And, uh, um, but, you know, we've got a member of the class here who's not been baptized. She believes. We're going at the teaching part before the baptizing part. I think that's legitimate. You know, to say, you know, it doesn't matter what you get first. Mm-hmm. What matters is that in the end you get all of it. Okay? And the teaching thing I don't think ever really ends. You right. know, there are a lot of people that are... One of the most frustrating parts of, of, of my work is when I confirm a class of confirmands, you know, this is, that happens particularly with the, the kids. And that's the last Sunday I see them. It's like, <laughs> it's like graduation and off they go. It's like, you're not done. And, you know, and I tell them that the whole time I'm teaching, you think you know everything? You know, and I, and I use myself as an example. I went to a Lutheran school. Um, I went to a Lutheran college. I went to seminary. I went back, I got a doctorate, and I am nowhere near done learning. You know, so don't tell me that after three years of, you know, the teaching that we do here, you know, one hour on a Sunday, which, by the way, you miss, you know, (laughs) 60% of those anyhow, that you know everything that you need to know. This is a lifelong pursuit. So... The key in the baptizing part is that we're baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And those are the words that we speak when we baptize anybody. So, questions that come up with baptizing. Dipping, dunking, pouring, sprinkling. Doesn't matter. The, uh, the word baptize comes from a Greek word, baptizo. That word means to wash by usually by immersion. So when you think of like washing your dishes, baptizo technically is you put it in the water and you wash it. And then, yeah. But the force of the verb is not on the dunking, it's on the washing. And that's why we're not too fussed about how does this happen. Um, I like immersion. 
it's beautiful. Uh, I think it, it becomes very symbolic uh, of what's actually going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, the old sinful nature goes down into the water and a new person comes up alive in Christ. I love it. I've only had the opportunity to really do that once. I was in Haiti on a mission trip and we had two people that wanted to be baptized and, and I got to be part of that. It's really not practical on the whole for those of us who live in, in places like Northeast Ohio. You know, down to the river and yeah. freeze. Well, especially this time of year, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it could be done across the summer, but uh, yeah, even then, sometimes it could be <laughs> pretty unpleasant. Um, but if the if the force of the verb is really on washing, you know, the the, the mode of how the water gets to you really doesn't matter. Um, so uh, if you can do immersion great. If you can't, okay. Um, and there's strong historical evidence that the uh, early church baptized both by immersion and, you know, by what we do with kind of the pouring thing. We've found baptismal fonts, you know, archaeologically. And uh, there, ain't, there ain't anybody going all the way down into that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bowl that they used, you know, for, for baptizing. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we, we don't get too fussed about that. Um, there are other people who will say, you know, it doesn't count unless you were dunked. Right. Yeah. I, I don't see that in, in, in the verb. You know, I don't see that as necessary in the verb. The, the key is really in the washing, not in, in the dunking. Um, now, infant baptism. Obviously, we do baptize infants. We hold that um, infants are part of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations. And there are people who will say, well, there are, there's no evidence of um, baptizing infants in the Bible. There is evidence of baptism infants in the early church. Um, I would push back against that a little bit because there are a couple of different instances where um, whole households were baptized. So Paul with the Philippian jailer, um, you know, he and, and Silas are in jail. They're singing hymns and there's this earthquake and they get released. And uh, uh, the Philippian jailer is about to commit suicide uh, because he knows that, you know, if you lose your prisoners, you're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they stop him. Everybody's still here. And he's just so overwhelmed and, you know, they tell him the gospel. He comes to faith. And it says that he and his whole household were baptized. When you start thinking about a whole household, you know, in those times, you have multiple generations living under the same roof. While I can't, you know, say, look, they baptize infants, you know, 100% sure. I think it's pretty reasonable to say, Paul probably baptized some infants that day. You know, and uh, anytime there's a whole household, um, uh, Cornelius the centurion with Peter, they, he baptizes the whole household uh, as well. Um, I think it's reasonable to say there are children there. Um, one of the arguments against infant baptism is that uh, children don't understand 
Anabaptists. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, that that is the tradition in large part, um, but Calvinists too. Oh really? Yeah. You know they 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 want to baptize adults, somebody who made a decision for Jesus. Okay, um, and uh, somewhere along the line, uh, and this is this is this is pretty modern. Um, you know, last couple hundred years modern. You know, when you know with a two hundred year old religion, two thousand year old religion. You know, last couple hundred years is pretty new. Okay. Um, People started to ask about this idea of an an age of accountability. Um, is there an age at which we become accountable for the things that we do, and uh, and they really kind of started to push hard on this idea. The idea is actually older than that because some of the church fathers asked, you know, as they're writing, thinking about these things. I wonder if there is an age of accountability. You know, um, uh, there was a guy named Origen who said this, and he goes, yeah, I think there is probably about three. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. <laughs> you know, but in, in uh, um, American Christianity, this idea of an, age, of an age of accountability is pretty common uh, in uh, um, non-denominational and uh, um, uh, evangelical circles. And uh, it's usually somewhere 10 to 12 years old, but there's no evidence for that Bible in, in the Bible. You know, King David says, you know, that he was conceived in sin and in, in sin his mother bore him. You know, just kind of this idea that, you know, the moment that he was born, he was sinful. You know, so if this is for the forgiveness of sins, why wouldn't we want that for our children? You know, and, and that's that's kind of the reasoning that we have. Okay. with the infant baptism and one more cool thing with, with infant baptism babies can believe we know this because when Mary went to visit Elizabeth <laughs> the one who announced there's Jesus is John in the womb yet in the womb yet yeah um, when uh when my wife and I, we were having our first baby, I was still in the seminary. And so I got to sit with my wife in church from time to time. And we sang in the choir. And you know, and we were at this old, old Lutheran church in downtown St. Louis. Marble floors. I mean, at one point, this place had some serious money. And they they used it to the glory of God. It was beautiful. Wow. Big, big pipe organ. And the choir would sit there right next to the pipe organ. We had one of these uh, organists who, uh, there was like one setting for him. And it was wow. loud. <laughs> and Why did they like it loud? I don't know. I don't know. But Ricky, every time the organ played, he'd start moving. Really? Yeah. You know, and Chris would be like, oh, he's dancing. You know, and, uh, and there's something really interesting if you think about that, that, he could hear that organ evidenced by his movement, which tells us that he could hear his mom. And there's scientific evidence that it, you know, points to this as well, that babies recognize their mother's voice, you know, after they're born. And, uh, and so in a Christian household, that baby has been going to church inside mom. 
and mom has been speaking the Apostles' Creed, telling the story, singing hymns that tell the story, you know, reading scripture verses in church sometimes. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Notice it does not say that faith comes by understanding. It comes by hearing. And there's the Spirit doing His work. And so, because of those things, we baptize babies. And uh, unapologetically. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, we really believe that the creation of faith is the Holy Spirit's work. It's not about our intellectual ability. It's not about us being able to, uh, to get it all together and to understand it all. Okay. Which is a really good thing. Because, I mean, the, the picture that the Bible presents of how people approach spiritual things, you know, he uses words like hardening and darkening and hostility. That we're hostile to these ideas apart from Christ. And, uh, uh, and it's the Holy Spirit then who does the work to make us alive to receive this gift. Um, Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite pictures of this. It says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What do dead people do? Nothing. They don't make a choice for Jesus. Right. But the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ. He does like this spiritual CPR, so to speak, to make us alive and gives us faith. You know, so even this gift of baptism, it's not about the baby and it's not about the people who are doing the baptizing nearly as much as it is about the Holy Spirit doing his work in that baptism to create faith in that child or adult for that matter. And uh, <clears throat> which sins? Uh, this is another important one because um, I'm pretty sure that the official teaching of the Catholic Church is that when you get baptized, everything that you've committed up to that point is forgiven. And then after that, well, then you need confession, and then you need, you know, the Lord's Supper, and then you're probably going to need some time in purgatory, you know, to work that off, you know, down the line, okay? We hold that uh, it's for the forgiveness of sins, period. Before, after, all of it. And that, and that this oh, is how God works. That he just keeps pouring forgiveness into us. And so repentance, which I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about in the sermon tomorrow. Repentance is actually, in a sense, going back to our baptism. You know, oh, I'm a forgiven child of God, but my behavior does not match that. I need forgiveness again. I need this forgiveness that I was given when I was Baptized. I need this old sinful nature to go back into that water to drown and die and to live as that new person again. And so baptism then, um, knowing that God's will for us and his desire for us is this forgiveness that he's already poured into our lives, is the confidence that pushes us to say, yeah, I sinned. And oh, I want to change. Oh, I want to be a different person, you know, in light of this forgiveness and this love and this salvation that I've received. Anything on any of this? No. Uh, So 
I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, confession and absolution, you know, they flow from baptism and they return us to our baptism. Talked about repentance. Real forgiveness, you know, it isn't some, you know, kind of symbolic, you know, a, a lot of people hold that baptism is just, a, that it's a symbolic action of our commitment. No, no, no. This is God doing his work in your life and he's really giving you forgiveness here. Uh, and we hold that, you know, in the absolution too. That when I speak and, and say, you know, your sins are forgiven, they really are forgiven. And it, it ain't because I'm so cool or, or any of those things or I'm so pious or I'm so holy. Um, if you hang out with me long enough, you will know I ain't. Um, and, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm just, you know, amazed that I get to be the one that you know, speaks those words. Um, but that doesn't mean that the forgiveness isn't real. It's not about the character of the pastor or the priest. It's about God's promise that's being proclaimed there. You know, so, you know, when, when I stand up there and after the, the confession and I say, you know, I forgive you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. But it's in his name right. as his representative. Um. And uh, we root this in uh, John 20, when this is after the resurrection, the uh, disciples are in the upper room, they're hiding for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears there to them, and he says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we say, there, there it is. That's where we have authority to forgive sins. That this isn't just given to the apostles. It's given to the church in order to have that authority to forgive and retain sins. Has there any, ever been a time when someone would withhold yeah. forgiveness? Yeah. Um, that's what we call excommunication usually. Okay. Um, it's a pretty sad moment. Um, sometimes people do this differently, and I think sometimes they, sometimes this is done abusively. I, I've I've heard pastors say, you know, that um, where where they uh, they tell people, um, I know what you did. You better not come to the Lord's table today. I'm like, ah. I, that makes me really uncomfortable. Um, I have no problem with, you know, my job is to call sin, sin. Um, and it might be my job at some point to look at somebody and say, you better think pretty hard about what you're doing here. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe it would be good for you to not come to the table until, you know, because your behavior tells me you don't believe this. Um, but boy, that would, that would take some really... It would take a lot to get me there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, um, when we do the withholding of forgiveness, uh, which I've never done in 20-some in years, um, it, it's done by the congregation. Okay. You know, we, we kind of follow the, the, the pattern of Matthew 18. You know, the individual goes and confronts. You know, then you have the, the church, you know, the elders or leaders or you know, they go and they confront. 
all, all hoping to gain that person back. And then if that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. You know, again, trying to pull them back in. This withholding thing, it's not meant to be a punishment as much as it is, you know, to really get somebody's attention that this is what's going on here is important and we're trying to win you back. Right. And I always think it's interesting um, in Matthew 18, you know, so you have those those steps and then they're, you know, then if they don't return, you treat them like a pagan and a tax collector, it says. You know, and um, when I was younger, I, the, the interpretation that I heard on that was, you kick them out. But the more I've studied the scriptures and look at how Jesus t- treats pagan and tax collectors, <laughs> he reaches out to them and he calls them to repentance. So I don't think that, you know, it, like back in the day, it was, you know, that means you're done. Right. Uh, pretty sure that's not it. I think, I think it means you're going to like double and triple your efforts to try to win that person back. Yeah. So, yeah, the withholding thing is, uh, it takes a lot of discernment and it's something that needs to be taken at um, with a lot of care um, and, 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 and caution. Here's Marty again. Um, he, he said in the, uh, the large catechism, when I urge you to go to confession, I am urging you to be a Christian. Um, you know, I think I mentioned in here that we do private confession and absolution. Um, and obviously that was part of his piety as well. You know, he was a Catholic priest. Right. You know, and uh, you know, the whole idea of coming to confession was a regular part of their life. Um, what changed dramatically after he uh, broke away from the Catholic Church was that when people came for confession and absolution, it was no longer, you know, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, you know, and then uh, this enumeration of, of things. Okay, well, your sins are forgiven. Now you need to go do X, Y, and Z. Penance. Right. It was simply, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And so, you know, when when I do confession and absolution, that that's that's how I do it. And a lot of times, depending upon where that person is, um, we'll bring that into the Lord's Supper, and uh, you know, and have communion together. Um, there will be conversation about your sins are forgiven. What does that mean for how your life is lived now? Yeah. What do you need to do? Yeah. But it's not a matter of. Um, you know, you need to do these things so that your sins are forgiven. It's a matter of your sins are forgiven. Now we need to live differently because of Christ, because of this forgiveness and salvation. Um, so that's baptism. Any questions? Any? No, I don't think so. Okay. Then let's get into the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper has multiple names. Uh, so some of those names, uh, I've got the Bible verses attached to them here. Um, it gets called the Lord's Supper in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, because the Lord is the host and he's 
you know, breaks the bread and he gives it. He pours the wine and he gives it. Um, so it reminds us of, of who we're with. Um, sometimes it's called the Lord's table, like in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, by the way, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the most stuff about the Lord's Supper in any one spot in the, in the Bible. So like that, those are, those are your go-to spots if you want to know what, what, what we teach about the Lord's Supper. Um, Lord's table, same kind of an image. You're sitting at the table together. Um, Holy Communion. Um, I like this one uh, because communion uh, speaks to the unity that we have with God in the Lord's Supper. But it's not just a unity with God. We also commune with the people who commune with us. And so there's a, there's a, uh, in, in American Christianity, we're very much um, influenced by this idea of individual, individualism. And so a, a lot of the devotional stuff that you read, it's kind of me and Jesus. And, uh, and as I talk with, with even um, Lutherans who, that, that's not part of our, our history, I hear that particularly in the Lord's Supper. Oh, I come on, it's, it's me and Jesus. I'm like, yeah, it is you and Jesus and the people who are up there with you. This is a, it's, it's a moment of a common confession of faith that we stand there to receive God's gifts together. You know, this isn't a, this isn't a moment of individuality. It's a moment of we're standing shoulder to shoulder before our Lord to receive his gifts. And I think that's an important part of, of what goes on uh, when, we, when we come up and we receive the Lord's Supper. And this is why, um, in general, we don't like to do individual confession or individual uh, communion. Okay. There, there are special circumstances that we do that. You know, I mentioned the one with the confession and the absolution. You know, there's something going on in that person's life and they're hurting and, you know, okay. Let's bring that to the Lord because they need that moment of them and Jesus. But the next thing is, let's get into church and get into worship and, you know, then they're back connected to the community. Um, Shut-ins. People who are, you know, too infirm to come. I go to them, you know, and, and we do a little bit of a worship service together. And I, I have a little folder that's got bits of the liturgy in it you know, that, you know, we often use that would hopefully be familiar to them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and we just walk through that together. It, so for me, that worship service hopefully gives them a feeling of being connected to the congregation, but they're not able to be in the congregation right. and they still need to receive God's gifts. If I can, I will do this. Um, like uh, we have... We have two families at uh, the Danbury out on uh, Boston Mills Road. When I bring communion out there, I uh, take, I get them together and we do the service together because we want to, you know, have that sense of the body of Christ, that, that communion, uh, unity with one another that we have. Okay. Um, in Acts 2.42, it just speaks of it as the breaking of the bread. Right. You know, it's just a... a it uses the picture of one part to speak to the whole. I think that's called hendiadis, where one part speaks for the whole. Called what? Hendiadis. Hendiadis. Um, and then 
this a lot of people's favorite, the Eucharist. Um, which growing up in Michigan, hearing that, I had no idea what this had to do with playing euchre. <laughs> um, which nothing. <laughs> uh, Eucharist comes from the Greek oikaristo, uh, which means to give thanks. Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And so it's the thanksgiving is literally what that means. And so it takes that moment as the name for the, for the whole thing. You will hear all of these. When you, you did use the word the host, Christ is the host. Yes, I did. And I've often, especially in the Catholic realms, you hear the actual... Yeah. Uh, elements are called the host. Yep, the bread is generally called the host, yeah. And is that um, something that, that Lutherans use? Uh, okay. Yeah, but we're not like, you know, it's not like you know, we, we insist that it be called that. I also call it a wafer. I usually call it bread. Although, to be honest, bread is pretty much a stretch for those little little neck away for things that we give out um have you had communion here no i'm okay. i'm waiting until okay today okay or just, whatever I, you know sometimes i'm like wait a minute have we, have we done this um yeah so i mean there's just these little teeny tiny things and they're and they're imprinted with a picture of the crucifix on them um you know reminding us of, you know jesus death you know and we're receiving that forgiveness that he won there there's nothing that says that you have to have that or anything like that. Right. Um, a lot of them, you know, they'll have like a little cross cut into them. It just kind of happens that once people start buying something, they keep buying it. And it's bread, so I'm kind of like, who cares what bread it is? Um, on Maundy Thursday... Um, you know, the day that we, we remember when he was betrayed, uh, which is also the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper. Um, there's a lady in the congregation who will make unleavened bread. And we use that that evening. Um, I've done it with uh, matzah bread. Mm-hmm. I think that, that was probably pretty historically accurate, mm-hmm. you know, with what Jesus probably did. Um, but, uh yeah. All that matters is bread. And then on the other side of it is, all that matters is that it's wine, and I think probably grape wine, um, you know, which the vast majority is, but I have had people show up with, you know, like, you know, blackberry wine. Can we use this, Pastor? No. Go get some grape wine. We'll use grape wine. You know, and that's just trying to be faithful to, you know, what we know historically about what, Jesus would have used. So, um, any questions with this? Not any, no. Uh-uh. Okay. So, the host thing, yes, we do call the bread the host. Um, but uh, I think that that's probably just tradition and carryover, you know, more than anything else. You know, it, it, when I said, you know, Jesus is the host, it's, he, he's the one who's sponsoring the meal. Right. So... The traditional meaning of host, and I assume that's where the other meaning came from, or the yeah, because you're receiving of that term. Yeah, because you're receiving Jesus, right? You know, and, and he is the. This is my body. Yeah, exactly. So 
There are four different places where we can find this uh, in the scriptures. Um, the thing that's interesting to me in this is that you've, you've got it in, in three Gospels, not the fourth. but not the fourth. Um, and, and I think there's good reason for that. I think that John wrote his Gospel last. And, you know, so his is very different from the others. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their spots, they're word for word exactly the same. And I think John comes along later and he says, this is fantastic, but there's more. You know, and in fact, he, he flat out says at the end, you know, if I wrote everything, I don't think all the books in the universe would, would hold them. You know, and, uh, um, you know, and so he, he, he kind of comes at it from a different angle. And he, he broadens a couple of the stories and tells new stories. You know, so he comes at it differently. He's talking to congregations that already celebrate the Lord's Supper. So he spends a lot of time focusing on Jesus' conversation that night and his prayers and his teaching and not so much on the, the supper itself because it's already taken care of, as, I think, as far as he's concerned. And then Paul um, talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And when you look at what we use in church, it most closely matches 1 Corinthians 11. Okay. You know, because really what Paul does is he takes the words from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, where he's had these things handed down to him, because he wasn't there. You know, so the, the whole thing with the Lord's Supper is he's learned this, and the Spirit has worked in him in this too. Um, and, and he... And he's retelling the story. In, in fact, uh, he flat out says, you know, I, I delivered to you what I have received. You know, that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it after he gave thanks. You know, and, and so that most closely matches what we hear in church. Well, okay. But wasn't Corinthians written before the Gospels? I think probably pretty close to the same type of time period. Okay. But what you have going on with the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Mark, is you're dealing with eyewitnesses. Right. So Matthew was sitting there. Mark has as his source, you know, Peter. Luke uses Paul as his main source, but he flat out says, I did research. Hmm. He talked with everybody he could get his hands on. I think he talked to Mary. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you we know, talked about that before, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he had to talk to Mary. I mean, he's the only one that has the full account of, of Christmas. How does that happen? Talk to his mom, you know? I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so so I, I think that, I think Matthew was probably the first gospel that was written, and then Luke, Mark, around the same time. And, uh, you know, people get really uptight about, you know, did they use each other when they wrote? Were there other sources out there? I, I think it's probably pretty obvious that they looked at each other's, you know, manuscripts. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, isn't that problematic? No, they're telling the same story. You know, maybe they tell it a little bit differently. You know, I think that Matthew's written for a Jewish audience. He keeps going back and he, he quotes these Old Testament messianic prophecies. If I'm from Rome, I don't care. But Luke, Luke 
you know, he, he kind of keeps talking about these interactions with these Gentiles. You know, and, and so maybe, maybe Luke is looking at this as a Greek physician and saying, I want to tell the story for my people. And I think Mark's is actually the most stylized of all of them. Um, and I think that he wrote his because the church was starting to experience some persecution. And they're looking back and saying, oh, wouldn't it have been easy to believe when, we were, when Jesus was still there? Because when you read through Mark, everybody's an idiot. <laughs> Nobody understands. Jesus gets angry. He gets frustrated. You know, and over and over again, they don't get it. And I think that Mark's point is that faith is hard. And it doesn't matter when you come to it. You know, that's what I see there. Okay. And then John comes as an old man. Very old. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and says, boy, there's more to this story. And you gotta, you, you, you'll be amazed at how much God loves us. Yeah. So. Good. Now, I got to tell you, when we get into these slides that are coming up, I've got some things that are goofed up. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how I managed to do that, but they're with the words visible and invisible. I wrote them on the wrong sides. The bread and the wine are very oh, visible. Oh, yeah, okay. And, and the body and the blood are invisible. Everything else on it is, is uh, well, no, not everything else is right. Um, so let me, let me walk through this. This is what we believe about the Lord's Supper. We believe that there are visible elements, bread and wine, and, and, and we receive these in a natural way. Okay? So I, I've got some things goofed up, and I realized it when I was putting this together, and I didn't have time to fix it. Sorry. But being a man of intelligence will be okay. <laughs> we'll sort this out. Well, that's a leap. <laughs> so... Bread and wine we receive in a natural way. But there are these invisible elements, Jesus' body and blood, that we receive in, with, and under the bread and wine in a supernatural way. Okay. And we say this is a sacramental eating and drinking. All right? So we teach that when you come to the Lord's Supper, you eat bread and wine. But you also eat Jesus' body and blood. People get really hung up on this. How does that happen? Yeah, tough. That's tough. In, with, and under, in a sacramental way. I'm going to go on the line and say these are weasel words to say, I don't know. I don't know how it happens. And honestly, I don't need to know how it happens. I need to know that it happens. And the way that I know that it happens is because Jesus says so. That this is what Jesus says is going on and that's where it ends. You know, and so, you know, on the night that he's betrayed, he, he, he started something new. He took something old and he made it new. Um, he gives us bread and wine and, and says, this is my body, this is my blood. It tastes like bread. It tastes like wine. Thanks be to God, right? Um, and so how, how do we understand that? That's it. That, you know, we have this natural part, and then we have the supernatural part, and we get it all. So that's what we believe. Uh, 
I got going on here. I don't know that that changed, did it? Uh, I don't have blood on there for some reason. Oh, that's right. Hmm. I'm not sure what I was doing here. <laughs> Boy, I am a terrible teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So let me get through this here. Oh, oh I know. Yeah, you're switching uh, wine and blood. And uh, so... All right, so let me go back to this one and talk about what other denominations teach. So if you're in the, um, the Catholic Church, and I think this is true for the Greek Orthodox too, but I'm not positive, they would say that when once the words of institution have been spoken, the bread and the wine no longer exist. Right. The only thing that you're receiving is the body and the blood. I'm actually not too fussed about that. There are some people who are like, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe, you know, you, you would say that. I, I like that a lot better than what the Protestants have done with it, where they teach that, no, this is just all symbol, and you don't actually receive Jesus' body and blood, and you're only eating bread and wine. Um, and the other thing that, it, that the Catholics, you know, also teach that I think is really important is that this is for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Whereas a lot of Protestant churches would say, no, it's just, it's symbolism. You know, it reminds us uh, that Jesus died for us and, you know, and that we have this unity with him. So if you're in a, a, a Protestant church, um, you, you will often see carved on the altar the words, you know, do this in remembrance. You know, and that's good. That's, I mean, that's, that's scriptural. You know, I have no, no issue with it. But that's the thing that they're, they're emphasizing, is that this is a remembrance of who Jesus is and, and, and what he is. I tend to argue that remembrance is also dealing with reception when you're dealing with Jesus. And, uh, um, and to, uh, to actually remember him is to receive his gifts and to receive his forgiveness and salvation. Um, a lot of times if you go to a Catholic church or uh, to a Lutheran church, if they have words carved into the uh, um, altar, it will be something along the lines of take and eat or this is my body, this is my blood. You know, and, and so sometimes our artwork starts to kind of speak to our theology of what's going on mm -hmm. uh, in, in the meal. Um, one of the things that uh, it kind of bothers me in uh, what some of like the mega churches do, you know, that they'll have, uh, and th this is, a, I'm being a little bit snarky now, so take that with a grain of salt. They'll have a little communion cup with grape juice in it, uh, with a wafer, it's, and that's sealed. And there's a wafer that's sealed on top, and then they pass those all out, and they usually go down the aisle type of thing, and then they all rip open the top and take that, and, they, <laughs> you know, it's like, Arr! you know, uh, I've never seen that, but that wasn't oh, like that either. Yeah, you know, it's like, no, this is a holy moment, you know, and uh, we have this way of, of making things, I don't know, just not as special as, as God intends them to be. Um, I should also say something about wine versus grape juice. When you come up to um, the Lord's Supper, if you choose to do that, um, when you see the uh, the trays, 
Um, actually, I've got this on a slide. I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me let me. You talk about the juice versus the wine on the outside and the inside. Yeah, it, you know, and then a little bit about you know wh- which is right and you know what should we be doing. So what do we believe that the Lord's Supper does? Um, that it gives forgiveness of sins. You know that it gives life. That's John eight verse thirty four. Um, it gives uh, salvation. That Jesus passes over our sins. You know because this is rooted in in the imagery of the uh, the Passover. In a sense, it fulfills what the Passover starts. Um, and it also strengthens our faith. You know the the work that it does. It delivers Jesus to us. It assures us of our salvation, and it gives us unity with the body of Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, is that image of being united in, in one loaf. Okay. Yeah, we have this unity within the body of Christ, and that's important. Um, and it's important you know, in the strengthening of our, our, life, our lives of faith together. You know, um, there's a story that's probably not true, but it serves as a really neat example. Um, it's said that uh, at one point, uh, Martin Luther was making a call on one of his members who hadn't been in church for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, hello, pastor, hello, let's go sit down. You know, they sit down by the fire and, uh, you know, the, the, the wife goes and gets a couple jugs of beer and they're sitting there drinking their beer by the fire. And the story goes that Luther grabbed a pair of tongs and pull the coal out of the fire and set it on the edge of the hearth, put the tongs back and sat back down, sipping his beer. And that glowing coal slowly got darker and darker and darker. And the member says, all right, Pastor Luther, I'll be in church on Sunday. I don't think that actually happened, but it's a really <laughs> cool image. Um, and uh, you know, we, we need that, that connection to the body. We need that time together in worship where God meets us together. We're not intended to do this alone. You know, and th- this is something that's particularly American, you know, to say, you know, just me and my Bible's enough. In a sense, yes. All, just believing in Jesus is enough. You know, but there's other stuff that helps. And there's other stuff, good gifts that God gives when we come to church. So who's worthy to receive these gifts? Uh, this is one of my favorite parts uh, in the catechism. When you know, Who's worthy? Yeah, I read that over a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> the one who believes the words given and shed for you. You know, you can go fast. You can go do all these outward preparations. That's fine. You know, um, I, I talked about fasting uh, in, in the sermon last Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I think that fasting is a good spiritual discipline. Um, I, I, there's a, I think there's a whole host of benefits that come with that. I don't think it's required. I think it's something that we choose, you know, like a lot of devotional practices to say, you know, this is something I'm going to do to kind of focus, um, you know, to really think about what God has done for me, to take more time to read the scriptures or, or whatever else. Um, and those are all good, but they don't make you more worthy. What makes you worthy is faith. It's trusting God's promises. Um, a person who uh, comes forward should be repentant. You know, 
we should be prepared to confess our sins and believe God's promises and to act accordingly. And, uh, and we also teach that a person should be able to examine themselves. That's out of 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, um, in the Orthodox Church, they will commune infants. Uh, in the Catholic Church, they start doing communion usually somewhere around second grade. After confirmation or after what do they call it? Um, I just heard it called first communion class. Yeah, first communion. Right. Yeah, and, that's, and that, that's usually somewhere around second grade, in my experience. Um, and, uh, for me, I'm not sure a second grader is able to examine themselves. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think an infant can, though. Um, and when it says you should be able to examine yourself, it doesn't mean that you have to have everything figured out. It means that you need to have enough wherewithal to recognize, I have sinned, and I need forgiveness. Um, so, I think... When that happens is probably different in different people, and it's kind of arbitrary. Um, here we we look at around fifth grade. We think that uh, most kids in that age group have enough wherewithal to recognize what God is doing, to believe that, and uh, also to be able to look at themselves and say, "Yeah, I did this wrong, and I did that wrong, and I need forgiveness." Um. You know, when I first time I received communion, I was in eighth grade. It was tied to confirmation. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. You know, it, it's just I can imagine a second grader being able to you know, examine him or herself. I can also imagine them not even knowing which way's up. You know, I've seen second graders out and you know playing baseball, and the ball comes right at them, and they're like, you know, <laughs> so. So of course, I've seen you, high schoolers like that too. <laughs> you leave it up to the parents, um, or is it is fifth grade a kind of an unwritten fifth for us here at Gloria Day, and and the other churches will disagree with us, uh, is kind of a um, a benchmark year. Okay. You know, and if if the parents say, "Man, my kid's not ready," we're like, "Hey, God bless you. We're just going to keep teaching, and when they're ready, we're going to do this." You know. I would love to actually hear parents say that a little bit more often, you know, but it just kind of becomes part of the ritual. But uh, but that's the arbitrary age that we've kind of fallen on. Okay. But there's nothing holy or mystical about fifth grade. So important points. The Lutherans practice what we call close communion. Some people say that it's closed communion. I have a little bit of an issue with that. Um, other Luther, Missouri Synod Lutheran churches um, will say, if you're not a Lutheran Missouri Synod member, don't come to the altar. I, I don't see that in the scriptures. Um, they will, um, there are some that will say, if you're not a member of this congregation, don't come forward. I'm actually more comfortable with that than the other. You know, because then they're saying, this is something that we do as a congregation that we're connected to and we know one another. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually more comfortable with that than, than what I said before. But really, the idea is that, that we agree with what the Bible is teaching us about what's going on here. That Jesus is giving us his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Um, 
And uh, uh, there are proper uses for close communion, that there are people who should be excluded, people who are like, you know, impenitent. They, they, they're, I'm a sinner and I'm going to keep sinning and I don't care what anybody says. Okay, you feel free to do that, but don't come up here because what's going to happen is you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Same thing with people who don't believe that Jesus' body and blood is there. No, this is just a symbol. I can go do whatever I want. Um, this is, this is uh, really the only thing that I've ever passed anybody by for. It, you know, in, in a, I've had people who come forward who um, they weren't baptized. They've had no instruction. And I've, I've just said, okay, we're going to pass you by. And I'm going to talk with you about that later. I'm not saying anything bad about you. You know, and after that conversation, you know, we're going to work on a path to get you here, you know. But one time I had a conversation with this gal right before church who flat out said, oh, this Lord's Supper thing, it's all symbolism and it doesn't matter. And, you know, and I said, don't come forward. When we get to that part of the service, just stay and sing the hymns, but don't come forward. And she came forward. Oh, and I looked at her and you know, and I said, I'm not communing you. I I don't hate you. I love you. you know, but I'm not going to give you this because this will hurt you. You know, so um, that's what close communion is actually about. That it's for the it's for the people of God. And it's it's for the people who trust in his promises. Um and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine is that passage that says that a person can eat and drink judgment on themselves. Right. Um, there's a, a church official, I think he's retired now, from California. He was a missionary. And uh, he tells a story about when he was a, a missionary in Papua New Guinea. Um, and uh, they're doing communion. And he's helping with communion. And uh, this lady comes forward and, you know, puts her hand out, puts the wafer in it, you know, and I don't always watch, you know, just, I just assume people eat it, right? You know, and communing, communing. And he's like, the same lady comes forward. And so he like watches her. And, and you know, and she's like looking at him and he's like, and she eats it, and she like falls to the ground, starts having seizures, and um, the elders come forward, and they're like, "Pastor, Pastor, don't worry, don't worry, we will take care of this." Grab her under the arms, they pull her out, and um, it turns out that she was a local witch. Oh my goodness! And she was trying to get some of these wafers because this is Jesus' body. And she was going to try to do her magic to, you know, get a hold of these people and, and get a hold of Jesus and, and control the, the, the pe people in the congregation. And, uh, you know, and she met God that day. Wow. You know, and uh, um, the elders knew, you know, and they're like, she shouldn't have eaten that wafer. They recognize exactly what was going on. That's God's judgment. And as the story goes, you know, 
that led into an opportunity to talk about the power of God and the forgiveness of sins and transformation. And you know, I never heard whether or not she actually came to faith that day or not, but I sure hope so. Um, but it's not a joke. Um, and there are parts of the world where those miraculous things, they're still seen. Mm-hmm. Now, wine or grape juice. When you look at the text, it, it, it talks about the cup and it talks about the fruit of the vine. Okay? Um, which, it's wine. Um, when you, you start talking about the fruit of the vine and you start talking about first century Middle East, if you make grape juice, it's not too long before you have wine. That's just the natural process. You know, they, they don't have any kind of sanitation. You know, there's must on the, um, uh, uh, the skin of the grapes that has yeast in it. And the moment that you squeeze those things, they're it already, starts. yeah, they're, it's going. So even if they squeezed it that morning, they've got wine. It might not be very strong, but it, it, it's already at work. Um, the idea of, uh, of using grape juice. Yeah. There's a guy by the name of Welch. Yeah. He, he was a pastor. You know, and it, it, you're looking at the 1910s and teens, you know, a, a little further back even. Um, you got that whole prohibition movement that's going on. And he was big in, in, into that. And I think probably to some degree without the best intentions... Um, you know, he invented a process to make stable grape juice. And, uh, and he could sell a lot to churches. And uh, uh, I, I might be being a little bit cynical there, but, you know, the history is true in terms of, you know, he was a big proponent of using grape juice instead of wine in communion. And, uh, um, you know, and uh, uh, that whole prohibition movement being something where, where people started to move toward grape juice instead of wine. We do have some grape juice on, on the tray. And uh, the reason that we do that is primarily uh, for people who have a problem with alcohol. You know, it, it, occasionally you run into somebody who has an allergy to sulfites or something like that. Um, and so it doesn't say that it has to be fermented. I think that it's better that it is. I think that that's more fitting. Um, but... Uh, um, you know, the fruit of the vine, you know, yeah. So it'll be grape juice. Um, the light stuff is grape juice. The dark stuff is wine. Um, and uh, for me, this, this is not a matter of preference. Unless you have a really strong reason, you take the wine. Um, you know, so we use you know, for health issues. Um, one of the other things that gets asked is uh, you'll notice that we offer a common cup and then we have the tray with the individual cups. Um, there's some history there, too. If you go back you know, to the, just 100 years, everybody used one cup. You know, this, this actually goes back even into the Reformation. One of the things that they argued about was when you receive the Lord's Supper, do you receive the bread and the wine or just the bread? 
Right. You know, and a lot of Catholic churches still do just the bread. Right. Although I've heard that more and more will give in what we call both kinds. They'll, they'll give both the bread and the wine. Um, and there's a little bit of sophistry that goes into that. If you receive a body, it's got blood in it. You know, and so that, that's kind of the, the reasoning there. Um, so we do both kinds, which means that there has to be some kind of a vehicle to give everybody wine. And you, you go back across time, and it was always a chalice. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, usually, usually made out of some kind of a precious metal. Not always, but usually. Um, and uh, um, somewhere around you know, 1900, uh, people started getting concerned about germs. And you know, they looked at the common cup and saying, you know, mm, that's kind of germy. Um, there are a couple of practices that are less beneficial. Notice I didn't say that they're wrong, but I think less beneficial um, that kind of flowed from that. One is something that's called intinction, mm-hmm. where you take the wafer, you dip it, and, you know, okay, you received the bread and you received the wine. Um, I'm not saying that anybody who does that is sinning or anything like that. Um, I will say there was only one person who was invited to dip the bread at the Last Supper. And I don't want to be that person. You know, um, Jesus said, take and eat. And then later he said, take and drink. There are two separate, you know, components. Um, So I'm not a big fan of intinction. Okay, that's interesting. Again, I'm not saying it's a sin or that it's wrong. Um, I think that it has its place when you have somebody um, who has a health reason. Um, There's a lady that I visit. She has difficulty swallowing, and she gags on that wafer. So for her to dip it and then to take it, it helps her to be able to swallow that. I think that's legitimate. You know, and somebody you know, who, who, you know, they, they only need the tiniest amount and for them to be able to, you know, take a drink or whatever, that that's a struggle for them. I think that that's probably better than not having it. Okay. Um, but I think it's probably better to take and eat and then take and drink. Now, the other thing that came out of it was the use of individual cups. Again, I don't think this is a sin or that it's wrong or, or anything like that, but I don't think it's as good um, because of the symbolism that is offered to us by everybody coming and taking from the one cup. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, even 1 Corinthians 11 talks about we all partake of the one cup. No, we don't. We take part of one tray with 56 cups on it, you know. Um, and, and that picture of that unity, I think, is is beneficial, but beneficial is not the same as right or wrong. You know, and I think that we have to, you know, recognize that. Um, and there are people who are legitimately scared uh, to use the common cup. Um, but I w- will say that the common cup that we use is made of silver and it's lined with gold. These are noble metals. And uh, the noble metals are called noble metals because they are known to not harbor germs. Hmm. 
And uh, when you think about what goes in there, wine has alcohol. Alcohol kills germs. Yeah. And um, this has actually been studied by the CDC. You know, individual cups versus you know that common cup, and you know the um, occurrence of the flu. No difference. It doesn't matter which one you, in terms of getting sick, it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen on the basis of what you, you know, you received there. And there's a supernatural aspect to that in my mind too, that what you're receiving is Jesus' body and blood. And when those things are received in faith, I don't, I don't think you're going to be hurt, you know, by what's going on there because it's given and shed for you to do good to you. You know, so if you watch, um, I always, unless I'm like really deathly sick, um, and, and the only reason I do it then is because I don't want other people to be like afraid when they come forward. Otherwise, I would still use the, the common cup. Uh, but I always take the common cup. And there are others, you know, in the congregation who do. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to give it a shot. Um, but... You know, encouragement and commandment are not the same thing. <laughs> um, but uh, it's interesting to me. Um, I see with even within a family, you know, that, uh, you know, certain family members will do the individual and others will use the common cup. Um, but uh, I, I, I like the idea of being as close to what Jesus said as possible. And what I read in that text is he gave them bread and they ate it. And he passed around a cup, and they drank from the cup. Um, so, any questions about any of that? No, I have some issues that individual that I'm going to have to grapple with. Okay. Uh, the instruction is good, and I think I understood you. But I have some individual stuff I don't know I'm going to have to worry with before I um, take communion or whatever. Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's pray and end this. And then if there's anything I can answer on an individual level. Okay. All right. Fine. Father in heaven, I thank you that we could be here today. I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that your word would continue to work in us to bring us the, the life and the forgiveness that you promise us in Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.